0: This show, is sponsored by Headnote, helping law firms get paid 70% faster with their compliant e-payments and accounts receivables automation platform. Learn how to get paid quicker and more efficiently at headnote.com.
1: Welcome to the Modern Law Library. I'm your host, the ABA Journal's Lee Rawls, and today I'm joined by Simon Tam, author of the book Slanted: How an Asian-American Troublemaker Took on the Supreme Court. Simon, thanks so much for joining us.
0: Thanks so much for having me.
1: Now, this is exciting for me because we have actually covered the case that you write about in this book in our magazine and on our website quite a bit. But for anyone who's not familiar with the Supreme Court case that you were involved in, can you please give us a little bit of a background on that?
0: Sure. So a number of years ago, I applied to register our band's name as a trademark with the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office. However, uh, shortly after we applied, we got rejected because the trademark office said that our name was disparaging to persons of Asian descent, saying that the name of the band, which is The Slants, uh, could possibly be interpreted as disparaging. So when we started looking more deeply into it, it turns out that the evidence that they brought to the table was just pretty much all wiki joke websites, things like UrbanDictionary.com and photos of Miley Cyrus pulling her eyes back. And so we kind of decided to appeal and push back on it. Little did I know that this pushing back would take nearly seven and a half years and eventually go all the way up to the U.S. Supreme Court. uh, All over this idea that you know, whether or not the slant is actually disparaging to persons of Asian descent and ultimately whether or not the the old provision of law they were citing was actually an abridgment of the First Amendment.
1: So I became aware of your case in probably 2015, 2016, but I had no idea the backstory behind it, how you came to form the band, and that was one of my favorite parts of reading Slanted was this this backstory. And one of the things I found really hilarious is that you'd have the idea for forming this band for a long time, but you actually booked a gig before you had other band members. <laughs> Can you talk a little bit about how you actually came to form the band, The Slants? Sure.
0: Well, in regards to that particular gig, it was mostly birthed out of me looking for opportunities to find band members. Because Portland, Oregon, especially when I was living there at that time was oftentimes called America's whitest major city So I wanted to start an all-asian-american band, but found it extremely difficult to find anyone However, one day I was invited to actually attend an anime convention and when I went there I thought there's gonna be all kinds of Asian people here It turns out it was just a bunch of geeky white kids who are obsessed with Asian culture Which gave me the idea that you know what? I'm just gonna go home and write them and see what happens. And so I, I wrote the convention saying that I had a band, which obviously I didn't, it was just me. And uh, you know, I created a MySpace page and used photos of my favorite actors from different Hong Kong films to like kind of get my foot in the door. And they immediately said, yes, they're like, yes, you're gonna be our headlining act next year, which really kind of put the fire under me to, to recruit. And so I used a combination of Craigslist, Uh, posting flyers in Asian supermarkets and just kind of working the internet as much as I could until I finally had enough people to actually put together that band um, just about two and a half months before that anime convention popped up again. So it ended up working out okay. We even had a couple of shows to kind of work through any kinds of hiccups on, on stage first before we took the stage at this major anime convention.
1: So now let's come to the actual name of the band. What came first? The the band that you finally assembled? The idea to start the band? The name, The Slants? How did you find that name and think, you know what? Yes, that's going to be our name. We're going to reclaim that.
0: It definitely began with the idea of the band first. Uh, the idea came to me when I was watching the film Kill Bill. This was April 2004, the day that the movie came out. I bought it on DVD. And as I was watching the movie, there's this very particular scene where this woman named Oren Ishii walks into a restaurant with her crazy 88s. It's the Asian mafia or gang that she led. Now, for me, it was such a powerful moment in the film. Like, I just paused it right there in the middle of it, trying to figure out why I was being affected by that. And that's when I realized that it was the first time I had ever seen an American-produced film that showed Asians as cool confident and sexy and then i thought you know if hollywood is bad well the music industry is far worse and so that's where the idea was really birthed but you know for anyone who wants to start a band like it's almost band 101 you gotta have a name and so i started asking all of my friends in portland what's something you think all asian people have in common and of course they would immediately say slanted eyes and for me i thought this was really interesting because you know, it was these facial features, these these eyes that I have that got me beat up again and again at school. It made me filled with shame. And since I knew Asians are the most bullied group in America, that I couldn't possibly be alone in this. So why not change it and, and make it a statement of empowerment instead? And that's where the idea for the slants is born. I was like, you know, we could sing about our perspective or our slant on life of what it's like to be people of color all while we reappropriate this kind of outdated like, idea or stereotype that we all have slanted eyes.
1: So one of the themes I hear you saying in that, and definitely it comes through in the book, is that while you love music, you love the music, you love at least parts of life as a, a touring musician, behind this was also this activist agenda, this, this social agenda, the idea that you wanted to make a difference in society. How do you think your journey through the bands and, you know, ending up as one of the names in this really famous Supreme Court case? What's your journey been like from, hey, I'm going to start this band, hopefully it's going to help some bullied Asian kids, to today in 2019?
0: I mean, I would really say it was a desultory and totally random (laughs) charity. I mean, from like an outside perspective, I, I just wanted to start a band to provide representation. I'd never kind of came in at this with this intention of being this social political act. But very quickly after starting the band, I would get handwritten letters sent to me from kids throughout the country saying thank you. Thank you for existing. Thank you for sharing your stories of being bullied and and for showing me that I could be much more than I thought. And when that started happening, it was like this light came on. I realized that, you know, we were going to be judged by this, whether we wanted it or not. We needed to be held accountable for our actions. So that's when I really started getting involved with social justice work. I started enrolling in classes on counseling because You know, we were talking to kids that were dealing with actual trauma and we started just kind of getting involved with a number of organizations, wherever we could find, wherever we could use our platform, our name to kind of drive attention or energy into a cause. I I just would kind of stumble into various causes and would, would go ahead and do that. Of course, this kind of culminated with the fact that we got rejected for our trademark by the government. We were already doing all this work in our community, but when the trademark office said, no, your name is disparaging to persons of Asian descent, and no, we don't need to talk to a single Asian American to make that decision for you. We know better than your community. Our community really stepped it up at that point and really kind of worked with us in all kinds of interesting ways to incorporate our work and our message and our music into the things that they were doing. So, I mean, even though I didn't intend on doing all this from from the beginning, I, I guess if you look at it from this kind of bigger picture view, it was almost like it was destined to happen because the idea of starting an Asian American band in of itself is a form of activism. I believe it's a declaration. It's a statement. And when you do stuff like that, the world will react in all number of ways. And so one can choose whether to continue pursuing that and finding ways to incorporate ideas of justice and the values of compassion, empowerment, or we could walk away. And for me, I decided to to stick with it.
1: I definitely want to get back to talking about the nonprofit work that you guys are doing. But first... I'd like to circle back to the first time when you had the idea, yeah, yeah, let's let's register our trademark. And then you found out that the registration had been rejected. And you tell the story in the book about your first lawyer, Spencer Trowbridge. And uh, you, you don't sound like the ideal client, because you were involved in a dispute with A conference. It sounds like over some unpaid fees, and you would, you know, shoot off emails to them before Spencer had a chance. (laughs) And as I was reading it, I was chuckling and just thinking all the lawyers in my audience would kind of get a kick out of that. I'm sure they've had similar clients. But when you were just starting out and thinking, well, this will be, you know, this is a little expensive. It's a few thousand dollars, but uh, good to get it registered. What was that? like? And and how did you respond when Spencer had to come back and say, you know what? You guys have been turned down. What would you like to do next? Well,
0: originally I thought it was a practical joke. I mean, I never heard of a law such as that because I was like, there's all kinds of offensive stuff out there. Like, I mean, give me a break. Are Are you kidding me? Like, why would they find our name disparaging? At that point, we had already been on the road for nearly two years and working with Pretty much every asian american social justice organization in north america and not once did we ever have like an issue with our name so it just caught me by surprise and then when he started reading to me the the old bit of law you know section 2a of the lanham act which says you can't register marks that are considered scandalous immoral or disparaging i was like okay well who did they find who was actually disparaged by our name by our work and when he responded no one and and told me that they just found an entry on urbandictionary.com. I I mean I just thought about I was like, are you you can't be serious. But of course he, he was serious. And I just thought I, I guess they just don't understand it. They don't they don't get it. And you know, after having kind of a longer conversation with Spencer, we decided to appeal. We thought, okay, this person just doesn't get it, but if we show them all of our relationships with our community, if we get executive directors of numerous Asian American organizations, like prominent leaders in our community, and send it their way, then they'll have to see it from our community's perspective. Of course, that was a bit uh, misguided. (laughs) It was, uh, I think, a bit naive, thinking that, you know, oh, we'll just send them, like, the correct information, and they'll go ahead and register it.
1: But I think that's the most common reaction of the layperson. And you hear all the time lawyers say, I'm telling my clients this is what the law is. This is how it'll go. And they say, but all I need to do is just explain. So I think it's completely natural to think, well, they just misunderstood and I could clear this all up. (laughs) You know, give me 30 minutes of your time and, and we'll be on our way. And instead, 13 years, you know, like 11, 11 years however long it was.
0: Yeah, it's like I thought we were operating with logic, <laughs> you know, like I'm like, okay, I read the law. I understand it. It's very easy to understand. Here's the evidence. Like where where are we going wrong with this? Why why are you using like like wiki sites? Where's your actual evidence?
1: One thing I'm curious about is Because you were involved in this case, because this ended up becoming such a big deal in your life, you also ended up spending a whole lot of time with lawyers, both because you're working on this case and also because you ended up having sort of a side gig and you guys would perform at law schools or law conferences and talk to lawyers about your experiences. And what's that been like? What's your experience meeting the people who... Uh, go out and practice American law every day. What's that been like for you?
0: Oh my goodness. It's funny because, like, I know more lawyers than I ever thought I would. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, lawyers and law professors and judges, they, they keep seem to be coming my way. Um, you know, I, I it wasn't something I ever imagined I would do, but a few people started asking me to share our story. And then we realized that, hey, we could do this. We can teach CLEs and we could really tell people about our perspective, like all the stuff that's not contained in a legal brief, which turns out there's a whole lot of stuff out there. Like that story matters. We could tell people about the client perspective of what it's like to be in this major case, like to be a named party in it, and hopefully inform people's work to improve it so that other people don't have to go through a similar experience as we did. Um, I found that the attorney's they have like some really split reactions. Like sometimes I I go in there with my band or I'll go to an event and people will treat me like a celebrity, like, oh, you're a rock star. Oh my goodness, like, can I take a selfie with you? And I'm just like, I just wanted to get a trademark. Like, I don't know what you're talking about. Um, And then there's other people who have very strong feelings on the other side who see me as this like, racist, anti-Asian person, or, you know, somebody who was doing terrible things in the law. And it's funny, because um, when I get to share my story, when I when I kind of explain the process we went through, and everything that we tried uh, to, to get the trademark office to give us that registration, almost always, they, they changed their position. They they might even be very familiar with my case, but the moment they start speaking with me and they start seeing the work that we've done with our community, they're like, oh my goodness, like, how could anyone in the right mind think this band was disparaging? I mean, the fact that we worked with like President Obama and his anti-bullying campaign to reach out to Asian Americans, it's like, if the government really believed that our name was racist, why would they ask us to do that?
1: And let's talk a little bit more about that work that you've done in the community. I think we've come to the the place where I'd love for you to talk about the foundation that you guys started. And you and I are speaking today. It is July 10th, and the band made a big announcement that's sort of related to this. So could you give my listeners some of that news?
0: Sure. So today we announced our final show, which is going to be on November 2nd in Seattle. Uh, It was a very... A long uh, process to make that decision and and kind of a very bittersweet one. I mean, I've been doing this band for over 13 years. And so obviously, it's a huge part of who I am. It's part of my identity. It's the thing I'm, you know, wake up every day thinking about. But I also realized that we can't keep on doing this forever. We can't keep on touring as a rock and roll band. You know, different band members are starting families. Um, I'm getting also very tired of, of living on the road all the time. And so we thought that's not a sustainable career anymore for us. But what we can do is use our band name, use our platform as a way to lift up other people. So we started this nonprofit organization to provide scholarships and mentoring to other artists of color who want to incorporate community activism into their work. And what's great about that is that we get to support work that isn't just in music, but also theater, dance, comedy, film, you know, whatever area of, the arts that someone wants to choose to kind of partake in and if someone has like something really important to say we could be there to help elevate that and and use all of the networks that we have all of the connections we have to raise money for them to build connections and to really help them out and i think for me that perhaps more than a trademark registration is definitely a legacy to be proud of
1: we're going to take a quick break to hear from one of our sponsors and when we return We'll hear an excerpt from Simon Tam's book, Slanted.
0: Hey, law firms. Getting paid is fantastic, but dealing with accounts receivable is such a pain. What if there was a better way? In her Headnote, an industry-leading compliant e-payments and AR automation system. Their unique blend of features cuts through the noise and helps you to get paid 70% faster. Skip the paper checks, spreadsheets, and awkward calls to overdue clients. Get paid faster with less effort. Visit headnote.com for more
1: information. Welcome back to the Modern Law Library. I'm your host, Lee Rawls, here with Simon Tam, author of Slanted. Simon, could you please read an excerpt of your book for our audience?
0: Absolutely. So at the point of this story, I had already been doing the slants for a couple years now we've gotten some incredible response. I mean, we were getting play on a lot of radio stations, we were touring frequently, but at the same time it was draining because I had all these legal fees. I was reading legal briefs and trying to deal with um, possible turnover in my band because you know people signed up to be in a band, not like a legal entity, and just kind of dealing with all these kind of different problems that were rising. Well, around that time period, because we were in the news so much, a major record label reached out to me and not just like any label, but like it was the label I dreamt of being since I was a little kid. Like I actually wrote to them when I was nine years old, asking for the mailing address of one of my favorite bass players. Cause I wanted to tell him that I wanted to play bass because of him. And so when they reached out to me, it was like unbelievable. I mean, I thought, I thought we just like won the the Powerball. But the problem is when we sat down, when I met with the rep, and they handed me the contract, it came with this clause. The, the clause was that they wanted us to replace our lead singer. And the deal was pretty much contingent on this, this multi-million dollar deal on the fact that we needed to replace our Asian lead singer with someone who was white. So in this scene, I'm, I'm staring at the contract, and, and this is uh, where it is. I looked at the contract in my hands and looked back up at him. It was almost like he was reading me. He chose his next words carefully. I know this is your dream, a dream you've had your entire life. I've heard you talk about it in interviews. You could do something amazing for your community, but on a much bigger scale. Don't you want to be able to take care of your family? If you signed this, your parents could retire right now. You could take care of them, and they wouldn't have to work ever again. I started thinking about everything that I owed my parents. Each of them worked so hard their entire lives. My dad had been working two jobs since the age of 11. I remember that they let me drop out of college to tour in a punk band just because they wanted to see me happy. My mind flickered to the many nonprofit organizations and causes that I cared about. I could do a lot of good with this. I could take care of my band, even Aaron, my lead singer, by giving him a huge share even if he wasn't in the band. I'm pretty sure he wouldn't mind receiving royalty checks for the rest of his life. But then, my mind drifted back to the letters I received from Asian American kids who wrote me in those early years, thanking us for our work. I started the band because of representation, because I was tired of watching Hollywood whitewashed roles and what that meant for people of color. I wanted to create an opportunity for Asian American musicians to be their whole selves, to live their values without compromise. My parents wanted me to be a doctor. Instead, I got into rock and roll. They wanted security and stability. I wanted social change. But when I thought about what kind of person they wanted me to be, regardless of vocation, I knew the answer. They wanted me to be a man of values, one who followed his heart. I stared intently across the table as I firmly held the papers in my hands. Yo, that's racist, and you're wrong. I'm going to prove you wrong one day. I tore the contract in half, stood up, and walked out.
1: Yeah, that was was quite the scene as I was reading the book. I may have punched the air a little bit on your behalf. Um, When you were writing this, you know, this is a memoir. Obviously, probably most people come to it because of the court case, but... Your life is not just about a court case. How did you decide what you wanted to include in this story to give people really a feel for not just, okay, this is how the court case went, but also your own life?
0: Well, when I started thinking about the story and, of course, it it kind of wraps around that journey to the Supreme Court, I started thinking, like, what's that story actually about? Like, what are the themes that are really there? And I realized it's really about dignity. It's about this ability to make a choice. But it's also about identity, like the power of being able to choose something like your own name or how you identify yourself and what that meant. And as I started thinking about my my life, I realized that I didn't always have the opportunity to choose my identity. And it, it wasn't until in recent years that I really kind of adopted this identity of being an activist. And so I wanted to have a story that, wrapped in all those kind of bigger ideas. So for people who are like not trademark geeks, people who didn't really know the court case, that they would still find something in that as well. Because I think for everybody who's living on this planet, we all can connect with this inherent idea of like identity as dignity. And for the many lawyers and law students and and people working in that area that I speak with uh, on an annual basis, I wanted them to see their work through a different lens. Like it didn't matter if they're just shuffling paperwork or maybe representing someone. Yeah, even at the Supreme Court, I wanted them to see their clients as something more than just a case, more than just a legal brief or someone to represent. I wanted them to realize that when people get dragged into major court battles, they bring their whole selves, whether they want it or not. It's not just like a financial drain in terms of legal costs. It's also a cost of time. I mean I spent almost a quarter of my life in court and I didn't even commit a crime and it also was an emotional train. I mean my parents were constantly worried about me because it was just weighing on me all the time and I couldn't even you know I had I felt like I was living under a microscope. Those are things that many people don't think about when they just carelessly write an article about someone who's in a court case or when a, a lawyer or lawyers might frivolously talk about a case. I mean, it's funny cause it's been over two years now and I still get articles popping up in my feed all the time about my band and our court case. And they all still say that, uh, or many of them say that I'm the lead singer of the band. And I'm like, I've never been the lead singer. Like one quick search on Google and you could find this out very quickly, but they just print it anyways, because they assume that, or they'll just print the, like include this idea that, oh, well, the reason why the trademark office rejected the trademark was because the slants are disparaging, because people were offended by the name. And I'm like, that's careless. Because not a single person was offended by our name. <laughs> like they they rejected it because they thought it might be offensive. They might be disparaging. And that's a huge difference, especially when one is already engaged in like nonprofit work or anti-racism work, to have accusations of with the weight of the U.S. government behind it, that I'm racist towards my community, that means something. And I want people to think more deeply about, like, what words mean, what the weight of those words might be.
1: When you talk about, you know, this is a quarter of your life and you're spending it in court, I really wanted for you as a reader to have a moment where it was basically Mr. Smith goes to Washington and you got to (laughs) get up in front of the Supreme Court and pound your on a table. But that wasn't what it was like. What was it actually like to attend the arguments of your case at the Supreme Court?
0: I I mean, I will say I grew up watching courtroom dramas, and I dreamt of that, you know, things like you can't handle the truth or like I could bring in some kind of dramatic thing. But the irony is that I was fighting for freedom of speech. And in that courtroom, I couldn't say a thing. I had to sit there and be silent. And what I thought was kind of weird is that even though they're using my name and they were using the name of my band throughout the oral arguments, most of the time I felt invisible. I felt like you're talking about a band that is offensive to my community. That's not the band I know. That's not me. Like we partner up with organizations all across this country to lift them up. I don't know who you're talking about. And so it was, it just felt so disconnected from everything.
1: And you weren't even guaranteed a seat at those oral arguments, were you?
0: No, no. For for many months leading up to the oral arguments, I thought our band would have to sit out on the street all night and wait in line like everybody else to try and get in. It wasn't until maybe two weeks beforehand that our attorneys confirmed that they could get us like tickets. Our our name would essentially be on the list to to go in. But right up until that, Point. I was ready to do it. I was like, "Okay, we'll go there with sleeping bags and we'll just wait out." I mean, it's like winter in DC, so it was not going to be pleasant. But we would make the most of it. Uh, thankfully, we could go in. But even while we were in there, it wasn't like I could sit anywhere near my attorneys. Like they have these two tables where the different sides are arguing from, and behind them are rows and rows of seats for members of the court or people who kind of essentially paid to be a member of the court behind that are all the pews where everybody else could sit and in that section in the second row of that section that's where they placed me and so they didn't even want me near my attorneys and that it was just it just felt like they were so bound by this particular tradition and almost passive aggressive kind of actions but i but i couldn't call it out i couldn't stand up and say things i couldn't say like you're you're wrong you know i will say there was one redeeming moment And that was about halfway through the oral arguments. At that point, Ruth Bader Ginsburg pops up and she starts asking the solicitor general this question. She says, doesn't it matter that everyone knows the slants are Asian? They're not using the word to disparage, but to describe and to remove the sting from the word. And I remember thinking like, yo, I think I'm (laughs) in love with the Supreme Court justice. (laughs) It just, I, I finally felt seen, but- The government's attorney, his response was, well, we found a lot of article on the internet that suggested otherwise, and I wanted to get up and scream, no, no, you're talking about urbandictionary.com where you're talking about the fact that the trademark office decided to use the language and rhetoric of a white supremacist website instead of listening to our community on the issue. But of course, I couldn't say anything. We had to just let that stand as if that were inherently true.
1: And one thing that I found uh, just a few years ago, and obviously it appears in in your book, is when your case was in the news and in the courtroom, everyone kept talking about the Washington D.C. football team. And as a publication, the ABA Journal has decided to only refer to them as the Washington football team, but their name is is a slur, uh, and everyone kept talking about this football team and your band as though they were identical. Could you talk a little bit about why that perhaps wasn't appropriate, how it felt to ma- have those comparisons being made? I'd love to hear your perspective on that.
0: Well, first of all, I, I never want to be associated with Dan Snyder or the Washington football team. I mean, I feel feel the same way. I have many friends in the Native American community and, and First Nations who believe that the name is racist and that it's extremely damaging. And for many years, I've supported movements to try and get them to change their mascot. So when we started getting wrapped up in it, I was really confused. I was like, no, we, we're fighting an entirely different case. In fact, for the majority of the time we were fighting our law case, it wasn't to get the provision of law canceled. It was just for us to get our registration that with enough evidence with enough knowledge and, and everything that we could present to the office that they'd be like, oh, this band isn't disparaging, let's just go ahead and give them that trademark. Things got complicated when we got to the, the Federal Circuit. There, the, the court basically decided, we don't care about these other issues. We were just basically going to accept the fact that the slants are disparaging, and we only want to know one thing. Does Section 2A of the Lanham Act violate the First Amendment? And of course, there we argued that, yeah, yeah, we, we do believe that it's viewpoint discrimination, that it chills speech, that, you know, when you have something like the First Amendment, you can't have a law like this. Of course, when we started actually winning, at that point, people started getting nervous because they thought, well, if the slants win, that means Dan Snyder's going to win as well because they were having their trademark registrations on hold for for a little bit because they were going through litigation on whether their team name could be canceled or not under this this old bit of law and so that's when people started essentially conflating the two and you know when we won at the supreme court i would say a good chunk of the headlines at least 50 percent did not even name our band they just say that the washington football team or touchdown for dan snyder or all they talked about was a football team winning at the court even though they didn't show up they weren't being argued at the court at all so it's it's incredibly frustrating because the law itself is actually quite nuanced and our approach to it was as well but people wanted a quick headline they wanted something they could grab onto and that created a lot of controversy and a lot of other problems because you know for us most people didn't realize that even if we lost and the, the lawsuit against the Washington football team was successful and, and they got their registrations canceled. Even if that happened, the the football team would not be obligated to change their mascot or their name. They wouldn't even lose their trademark rights because of all of the brand equity they built up over the years. They could still sue anybody and win easily. And so that was going to be a victory just in principle. And I was like, if you're not even going to, Get the thing that you're seeking for through this process, but this law at the same time is actually hurting people from marginalized communities. Then we need to reconsider that legal strategy. But that's a very kind of complex notion and one that doesn't play out well with headlines.
1: It does not. But uh, you and your case were in the headlines again within the last couple of weeks because the Supreme Court heard a different case that was addressing a different part of the Lanham Act. Uh, For your case, they had to decide that um, the disparaging, the word disparaging, you could not deny registration because something was disparaging. And in this other case that we've also written about in the ABA Journal, and I'll include links on our website if anyone's interested, I'm going to attempt to say this person's name, Iancu V. Brunetti was challenging the idea that you could not register a trademark if the Patent Trademark Office found it immoral or scandalous. Uh, do you have any insight into this case? Were you following it closely?
0: Yeah, I mean, I was following the case fairly closely because it, it's kind of like the sister case to mine. And in fact, I worked with Stuart Banner at the UCLA School of Law to file an amicus brief in uh, Bernetti's support because what I saw was the trademark office still using this outdated provisional law to basically reject people that they didn't like. And that is an inherently un-American, unfree speech kind of thing they do. For example, they were, they were claiming to defend people. But they weren't actually doing that. The lo- The way they applied the law was extremely erratic and inconsistent. Uh, some friends of mine in Seattle, Washington, it's a feminist rock band called Thunder Pussy. They had their registration denied because the trademark office said that's too scandalous for women to, to use that term. Yet, when all these porn companies wanted to register that same term, the trademark office had no problems with that whatsoever. Or with Brunetti's trademark in question, uh, it's F-U-C-T. He says it stands for friends you can't trust. Well, they denied him, but they allowed French Connection UK, F-C-U-K. And they've also allowed dozens of other trademarks that basically are all playing off of the, the F word. So it was kind of absurd that the trademark office could kind of with any seriousness say that they were applying this law consistently and effectively. And you know, while respecting people's free speech rights.
1: Well, we're reaching the end of our time, but I would love to hear from you. Uh, You've written this book, Slanted, and it sounds like you guys have a lot in the works uh, for the future. But looking back, is there a lesson that you took from this experience of a quarter of your life and this case that you'd like to, to talk about to, say, some of our younger listeners and any lessons that you think we should all think about when we're making decisions and choices in our own lives?
0: Sure. So I I get this question pretty often, uh, surprisingly from attorneys and sometimes judges and law students, but they oftentimes will ask me, how do you win a Supreme Court case, which is kind of funny because I didn't go to law school, but I always tell them that, you know, it's easy. All you have to do is stop thinking like an attorney and start thinking like an artist instead. You see, with artists and same with activists, we don't think about what's possible. We don't think about the past per se as like a limit for the future. We just think about the kind of world that we want to see and then we work out the steps to get there. I think we can live in a much more just and equitable society if we stop thinking about what is actually limiting us and instead start working out what is actually possible by, by embedding these ideas, by incorporating these values into everything that we do. There was a particular moment a couple nights before we went to oral arguments at the Supreme Court that has always stayed with me. And we actually released an album on a holiday, Martin Luther King Jr. Day, right before we went to the Supreme Court. And we decided to dedicate this album to the government. We called it The Band Who Must Not Be Named. And as part of the celebration, we went to the Martin Luther King Jr. Memorial to play some songs and kind of celebrate with the people gathered there. What's interesting is like, by the time I was in D.C. with the band, not a single person was an original member. like I was the only one who had been there throughout this entire legal ordeal. And so the other band members didn't have the same appreciation or experience that I did. And so I wanted to take some time out for myself. I walked around and kind of meditated on each of the quotes from Dr. King, which are carved into stone throughout the memorial. And my eyes came upon my favorite quote from Dr. King, which is, that the moral arc of the universe is long, but it bends towards justice. I remember staring at that quote and thinking, it's true, but that moral arc, it does not bend on its own. It requires patience, it requires persistence, and it requires people who not only understand their rights, but are willing to fight for them. And so my plea to, to any listener or to anyone reading this book is to like think about that better world that we would like to see and bend that moral arc of the universe just a little bit more.
1: Well, Simon, thank you so much for joining us at the Modern Law Library, and thank you to our listeners. Simon's book is Slanted, How an Asian American Troublemaker Took on the Supreme Court. If you enjoyed our program, please subscribe, rate, and review on your favorite podcast listening service.